This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Morning to a Center for International Security and Cooperation sponsored panel on the issue of insurgencies, failed states, and the challenge of governance. My name is Jeremy Weinstein. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and an affiliate of CSAC and also the Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. And I'm really happy to see this great audience here this morning. Uh, you're going to be treated to some of the perspectives of the leading thinkers on issues of insurgency, failed states, and issues of post-conflict reconstruction in the two gentlemen seated next to me. What I've asked them to do is to begin with about 10 minutes of comments each. I'm going to offer some of my own thoughts, but then we'd really like to leave the last half an hour at least for some conversation and questions and discussion with the group. So we're going to start off with Dr. Steve Stedman. You have his full bio in your, uh, in your handout, uh, but Steve is a senior fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation and also the director of the Ford Dorsey Program in International Policy Studies at Stanford. He's a longtime expert on issues of civil war and post-conflict reconstruction, and most recently, uh, and I imagine some of what he'll be talking about today, relates to his work as the research director for the United Nations High-Level Panel on Threats, Challenge, and Change. Uh, and following the release of that report, he served as Assistant Secretary General uh, and Special Advisor to the Secretary General of the United Nations, working to implement some of the recommendations of that report, uh, specifically a number of these recommendations related to the issues that are on the table today. So I'm happy to introduce Steve Stedman, and he'll start us off. Great. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, and thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm going to speak briefly about the UN's role in addressing civil wars, whether it be prevention, mediation of peace agreements, implementation of peace agreements, and peace building. Um, start from a uh, point of view that, that in the 1990s, uh, uh, how, it, how it dealt with civil wars uh, were the site of the two most shameful failures of the United Nations in its 60-year history, uh, that in Rwanda in 1994, in the face of genocide, the Security Council withdrew a peacekeeping mission, uh, and then a year later in Srebrenica, uh, the Security Council did the same in a, in a uh, area that was supposed to be a, a safe haven. Nonetheless, I'm going to argue uh, that the UN is probably much more effective in addressing civil wars than it's given credit for. Um, first of all, the demand for UN peacekeeping has not gone away. In fact, uh, there, were, there was a lot of discussion after Srebrenica and, Rwa uh, and Rwanda that UN peacekeeping was dead and regional peacekeeping was the wave of the future. That has not panned out. Uh, the UN has 18 peacekeeping missions right now, all-time high of 80,000 peacekeepers in the world. If uh, you get a deployment to Darfur, the numbers will be over 100,000, uh, and UN peacekeeping is, is at an all-time high of six – budget is at an all-time high of $6 billion. So um, there are at least two facts that suggest the UN has had an impact in bringing civil wars to a close. The first is that since 1992, we've seen a 40 percent decline in the number of wars in the world, in the number of civil wars, uh, which is, uh, for any period of 15 years in the last 200 years, a dramatic, dramatic decline. Um, now, there, there are many explanations for why we've had that decline, but the fact of the matter is that there's almost a, uh, a perfect correlation between that dramatic decline in civil wars with the rapid rise in mediation efforts in civil wars and U deployment of UN peacekeepers to implement peace agreements in civil wars. Second fact that suggests that the UN has, had, uh, has been more effective than it's given credit for is that you've had more negotiated settlements in the last – more negotiated settlements of civil wars in the last 15 years than in the previous 200 years. When I was in graduate school here in the 1980s doing my dissertation, most textbooks on war termination dismissed the possibility of negotiation in civil war. Uh, civil wars were depicted as all-out wars in limited settings, and because of the passions involved or the commitment problems, you could not negotiate them to the end. Uh, rather, one side was going to have to eliminate the other if you wanted to end a civil war. Um, well, international actors have proven that decisively wrong in the last 15 years. Um, so 
The question is, uh, once you get back beyond those two facts and be beyond the correlation that international actors now have, in essence, a sort of standard care regimen for dealing with civil wars, which involves mediating, getting a peace agreement, putting peacekeepers on the ground, doing demobilization, disarmament of soldiers, and a myriad uh, number of different tasks, which are, are carried out in a rather rote manner. Uh, you, you then have to start asking questions about, well, when is this effective? When is it not effective? What, what particular tasks that are carried out uh, really make a difference? And there we're sort of in a, uh, I would say, sort of a primitive science phase. We know that uh, in terms of an overall population, we've actually reduced the numbers. Uh, we know that, that some difference is being made, uh, but beyond that, it's difficult to establish sort of causal relationships. Nonetheless, I'm going to make a few bald statements. First of all, when it comes to actually implementing peace agreements in civil wars, um, once you get sides to actually sign a peace agreement, uh, the numbers vary, but 40 to 50 percent of countries that sign a peace agreement in the civil war will revert to violence within five years. So you want to know why are some cases successful and why, why do some cases fail. Um, in terms of uh, success at implementing a peace agreement, um, uh, the best answer is, that I can give you that suggests for you is, uh, you know, peace agreements succeed where the case is relatively easy um, and there are lots of resources, right? And so you just have to figure out what is an easy case of civil war termination, what is a more difficult case of civil war termination, um, in the research that we did, uh, we suggested several things, that you could create uh, a difficulty score, and I'll just name the, the variables very quickly. If you have more than two parties, that is three or more parties to the Civil War, implementing a peace agreement is going to be more difficult. If you have valuable resources that are easily traded, valuable commodities such as gems or timber, you're going to have a more difficult time in implementing a peace agreement. Um, numbers matter. Uh, in terms of armies, you know, implementing a peace agreement in Cambodia where you were trying to demobilize 150,000 soldiers was much different, much more difficult than implementing a peace agreement in Guatemala where you had about 3,000 guerrillas that needed to be demobilized. Um, fourth, uh, if at any time uh, in the Civil War one of the parties has demanded secession, we coded that as a more difficult case to, to implement because it already suggests sort of the presence of uh, you know, a zero-sum mentality uh, to the conflict. Um, fifth, uh, whether there are spoilers, that is at the time of uh, the signing of a peace agreement, you could make a good bet that uh, there is a party or leader uh, whose interest, worldview, and power was threatened by the peace agreement and was likely to use violence to undermine it. Six, were there hostile neighbors, uh, that is, were neighboring states opposed to the particular peace agreement. If they're opposed, it's going to be much more difficult to implement. Um, seventh, um, in the midst of trying to implement a peace agreement, are you also dealing with a collapsed state? Because if you are, uh, you're not only trying to make peace, but you're also trying to, to you know, create a new, uh, you know, some kind of functioning uh, state that, that does the things that, uh, you know, states are supposed to do to provide uh, stability and order. Uh, so in a, a Somalia or a Sierra Leone or Liberia, uh, this becomes incredibly difficult uh, if your state has collapsed. Um, and then eighth, um, you know, the agreement itself. If the, if the peace agreement itself is rather weak, um, then you're going to have a much more time, uh, more, much more difficult time implementing it. Um, now, it's not to say that uh, uh, if a case is to the more difficult side that you necessarily will get failure, but the argument is uh, the more difficult the case you better compensate in terms of the amount of resources that are available to implementing the peace agreement. That is, extremely difficult cases are going uh, are to need much more coercive strategies and they're going to need much more greater influxes of, of uh, resources. And the problem, of course, is that you can actually make a bet beforehand which cases are going to get the resources that are required to succeed. Right? If you have a particularly difficult case and it's in Africa, um, uh, you can make a pretty good bet that it's probably not going to get the resources that's, that are going to be necessar necessary for it to succeed, right? Um, let me just go on to say, uh, in all of the things that are done in implementing peace agreements, what subtasks 
matter. That is, peacekeepers are asked to demobilize soldiers, disarm them, uh, carry out transitional justice, promote human rights, repatriate refugees, on and on and on. Um, so if you had a limited budget, if your resources were limited and you had to invest them in particular subtasks, what would be your best investment? That's the kind of question that we would ask of, of implementers in peace agreements. Um, uh, two things stand out. One is dealing with what I described as the spoiler problem. That is, you know, how do you deal with uh, spoilers and create some sense, a minimal sense of security against those who would use violence to undermine the agreement? But beyond that, there, our research suggests that the demobilization of combatants uh, is the single most important subtask. Now, uh, since we carried out this research, a couple people have asked some, some very good questions and have done research to, to suggest that, um, that it may not be as important as we think. So Jim Fearon, one of my colleagues in political science, uh, you know, has asked me, you know, is it, is it really demobilization or doesn't successful demobilization suggest something else that makes it possible, usually willingness on the part of um, militia leaders or rebel leaders that they're going to take the, the chance to demobilize their soldiers? And is it really the demobilization per se? And Jeremy has carried out some preliminary research that, that also asks some, some trenching questions about how effective these programs really are. Um, Finally, I'm just going to end on uh, two things. Uh, again, evaluation questions. If you think about the UN and how it addresses civil wars as a kind of global public health program for states that are in trouble, um, you would ask two questions that, that are commonly asked in evaluations of public health systems. First is, who is admitted to the system? And secondly, what is the quality of care for those who are admitted? In terms of who is admitted to the, to the system, our research shows that actually the UN goes to the most deserving cases, that is, where the most, where, where the most people have died um, and you've had the greatest humanitarian disasters. That's where the UN tends to go. The bad news is that it does it on uh, an inequitable basis. That is, uh, war breaks out in Europe, uh, as it did in the 1990s. Uh, the UN is there very rapidly, right? Um, uh, in Africa, many more people have to die and um, much more time has to, to take place before uh, the UN responds. Interestingly enough, the, the, the worst in terms of inequity is Asia, not Africa. That is, many, many more, many more people have to die in wars in Asia to prompt any kind of UN intervention and probably has to go to the question of having stronger states in Asia and a more traditional view of sovereignty uh, and uh, uh, intolerance for outside intervention. Final question, you know, uh, those who are admitted, what is the quality of care? And uh, here, again, it, it, it varies wildly. Um, for instance, if you look at the amount of resources that went into implementing the Dayton Accords in Bosnia, now, we stopped counting after five years. So from 1995 to 2000, international actors spent about $20 billion to implement the, the Dayton Accords in Bosnia. <coughs> That's in the first five years. It came, comes out to about $5,200 per Bosnian, right? The equivalent number in 1993-94 to implement the Arusha Accords in Rwanda was uh, $35 million or about $4.84 per Rwandan, right? So that's the discrepancy um, to, to show that, uh, yes, Cases in Africa do make it into the system, and you do get a response, uh, but the quality of care uh, is pretty poor. I'm going to hand it off to Larry. Uh, well, you can <laughs> skip the introduction. They can read it. We need the time here. Um, uh, you can see uh, when either of these gentlemen speak, uh, mainly what I do is take notes. Uh, I learn a lot from them. I think they're right on the cutting edge of our uh, national scholarly and policy effort to understand what is clearly one of the most uh, compelling and sobering challenges to international security in the world today. And um, I read uh, Stephen Stedman's um, co-edited book, I think a truly seminal work on ending civil wars um, before I went to Iraq. Uh, and um, I, it, it had a very big impact on me. 
uh, it reinforced my view that we should not have gone in in the first place. Go down his list on difficulty score. More than two parties to the conflict, valuable traded commodities. Well, let me tell you, oil might not be what you had in mind, but uh, insurgent and militia forces are cornering pieces of the oil, tapping into the pipelines, and selling it uh, in uh, international spot market uh, transactions. Demand for secession at any time? Well, about 90% plus of the Kurds voted in an informal referendum uh, for independence during one of the recent elections. Well, we're not talking about a peace agreement here, but I'm just laying out uh, the difficulty of stabilizing Iraq now by the criteria that Steve Stedman presented to us. Spoilers, not at the time of signing, but let's use the Constitution as a metaphor for a peace agreement. Uh, and think about all the different militia commanders, uh, the insurgency in Anbar province, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr, who have not clearly committed to the new constitutional order. Hostile neighbors, let's see. Um, <laughs> collapsed state, yes, there's a collapsed state in Iraq. We collapsed it. There was an evil, dangerous, um, very... Um, uh, detestable uh, and human rights violating state in Iraq before March of 2003. But it was a functioning state. We went in, we broke it, and as Colin Powell said in his famous words, we then came to own it. Uh, and we would, did not do what I'm going to suggest uh, we need to do uh, to uh, rebuild it. The agreement itself is weak. Well, so is the Constitution that was adopted uh, by referendum uh, uh, in October of last year uh, with one very strategic section of the country, that section which has got the best ability to mobilize insurgency, namely the Sunni minority that once for 80 years ruled the country uh, and controlled the army, intelligence, and security apparatus, overwhelmingly rejecting it. In terms of challenges for post-conflict stabilization, this place is just off the charts. Now, um, the remainder of what I'd like to do here is to address what we can learn from our largely failed experience in Iraq uh, that can inform future efforts uh, by the United States and other international actors now. It could be the United Nations. It could be informal coalitions to rebuild uh, failed states and to uh, generate some degree of capacity, responsibility, and hopefully democracy uh, in the reconstruction of governance uh, in these failed states. Uh, so let me go through a very brief list here. Uh, and then let me say I have a paper. If you're more interested in this, uh, I'd be glad to send you the paper. Number one, uh, before we intervene, we need to, whether it's we the United States, we the, quote, international community, or we as part of the United Nations, we need to understand the context in which we are intervening. We need to understand its historical, cultural, sociological, political dimensions. This requires the mobilization of expertise of an uh, academic nature, if I may say so, very humbly, uh, in terms of what the history and cultural traditions and divisions are in the country. It um, requires the mobilization of what's called in the field ground truth, about what the current realities are on the ground in terms of the structure of different uh, insurgent groups, different political alliances and motivations, things like that. And it's not a very good idea to intervene before you've mobilized, weighed, and distilled to some extent a good analysis of what the situation is on the ground in these different uh, political, social, I would add economic, cultural, and historical contexts. Secondly, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of it. The tragedy of our failing to do this comes through every book that has been written about our failure in Iraq. Uh, Bob Woodward's book, State of Denial, Tom Rick's uh, book, uh, Fiasco, uh, another book that I um, will just hold up for you, and uh, others as well. Uh, mobilize and commit 
adequate military and financial resources. Uh, Steve alluded to this in his presentation. The more difficulty, the more resources. Now, the superb uh, scholar, uh, expert, and administrator of post-conflict reconstruction at the RAND uh, Corporation, Jim Dobbins, uh, Ambassador Jim Dobbins, led a study that was published just before we went to war in Iraq, but whose conclusions were uh, circulating before we went to war in Iraq, uh, that actually has much of what I'm saying here in there in terms of the lessons they draw from America's experience in post-conflict rebuilding across actually quite a number, a surprising number of instances in the post-World War II period, beginning with Germany and Japan. And one of the lessons they draw is a formula for the number of post-conflict stabilization troops that are needed in this type of situation. And the formulation is when you approach the higher level of difficulty that Steve Stedman was talking about, you need a, a, a more uh, ambitious blanket of international security presence. And the ratio they offered was 20 troops per 1,000 population, or one international stabilization soldier for every 50 people. In Iraq, that yielded a uh, logic of uh, international troop presence, not to topple Saddam, but to stabilize Iraq after Saddam, of 460 to 500,000 troops. And that is pretty much where General Eric Shinseki got the number that he gave to the Senate Armed Services Committee, for which he was roundly denounced and humiliated by Under Deputy Secretary Paul Wolfowitz and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, that we needed several hundred thousand troops uh, for this mission. The fact that we didn't have them, I think, is one of the major reasons why we've had such a, a vacuum of security in the, quote, post-war, end quote, period in Iraq. Let me say that um, I think one of the most urgent challenges for dealing with failed states in the world today is to have a much larger, readier reserve of uh, international uh, stabilization troops. Uh, and if it's 80,000 now, uh, it may well need to be, in terms of what the United Nations can call on, on relatively short notice, of troops that are somewhat trained for this purpose and standing and ready and able to be deployed with logistical abilities that now, we haven't even talked about logistics, mainly fall on the United States Armed Forces, but we need a lot more troop transport planes and I would guess, off the top of my head, another 100,000 troops beyond what we have now for deployment uh, in these more normal uh, situations. Okay, moving along quickly here, I see Jeremy getting nervous. Third, establish international legitimacy and active support for the post-conflict intervention. Uh, that means if we do it alone, without international sanction and cooperation, or with a coalition we declare to exist, uh, but which is a coalition substantially in fiction in terms of the legitimacy that the participating states have domestically, politically, with their own populations. We were virtually the only country, maybe Australia, in the coalition uh, for intervention in Iraq where the public supported the intervention uh, initially. Everybody else has been participating over the objections of their own uh, international uh, intervention, uh, the objections of their own people, and the rising objections, which makes staying there very difficult. It's better to have international sanction and ideal to have United Nations sanction. Fourth, generate legitimacy and trust within the post-conflict country. Uh, this means uh, don't have an occupation. This was one of the most disastrous decisions the United States made, was to have an explicit American or Anglo-American occupation of Iraq. How, in this kind of historical context, if we had read the history, are we going to generate legitimacy for the intervention if we've completely robbed them of sovereignty? Fifth, be cautious about rushing to national elections. Actually, there's a very good chapter in Steve's edited book on this, 
Uh, I am a big advocate of democracy. I believe in popular sovereignty. But if you rush to national elections, you can harden nationalist sentiment. You can polarize um, the different uh, sectarian and identity uh, groupings into uh, dedicated political enemies with committed and inflexible popular followings. Better to have a more organic process that allows for a new political and hopefully cross-cutting party identities to form and hold local elections first uh, whenever you can and more gradually construct a national competitive political system. Sixth, uh, disperse economic reconstruction funds and democratic assistance as widely as possible. Uh, the provincial reconstruction teams that were used in Afghanistan had it better than the highly centralized reconstruction process in Iraq. I hardly need to tell you about all the ways that went wrong. The best element of what we did in Iraq was done very locally on the ground by our local uh, coalition civilian uh, uh, managers and by our local military commanders using relatively small amounts of fund, much too small in my view, for the commander's emergency reconstruction program. Seventh, promote local participation and proceed with humility and respect for the opinions of the people in whose intervention, uh, in whose interest the intervention has supposedly been staged. This means uh, involving them in informal ways at the community level in their own reconstruction of their communities. Again, some of the military commanders did this. They wanted actually to hold uh, in Iraq uh, very sort of rudimentary local elections, and these were vetoed um, by the uh, central authority, in particular Ambassador Bremer. Eighth, institutionalize the capacity for effective intervention and governance building uh, in um, post-conflict settings. And let me close with this. There is um, significant progress being made, it seems to me, in my untutored eyes, within the United Nations, very prominently because of the report uh, that Steve uh, was the research director for of the high-level panel, one of whose recommendations I think is being implemented to some extent, maybe you could talk about it, for a peace-building commission, uh, is in the process of reinventing the institutional architecture of the United Nations. There's been rather little reinvention of our own institutional architecture in the United States. There is an office that's been created within the State Department for dealing with post-conflict situations. I think it's much too far down the bureaucracy and way too under-resourced. One of the lessons of our Iraq intervention is that somebody, not only an individual, but an institution, an organization, has to lead and coordinate the interagency process. I think it's got to be a new cabinet department for international development and reconstruction uh, which USAID can be brought into as the seed or core, but has to be elevated both for being able to coordinate our own government and being able to have the stature to coordinate internationally into cabinet status. This is not the last time we're going to have to intervene in some way to help rebuild a failed state. So with that, I'll stop. Thank you, Steve, and thank you, Larry. Before we move on to the discussion, I'd like to offer, from my own perspective, some uncomfortable ground truths that I've come to, largely drawing on two parts of my background. One part of my background is as an academic studying the dynamics of insurgency, particularly in Africa and Latin America, and spending time in the bush with combatants trying to understand their motivations their organizations, and the sorts of constraints that these different organizations might pose for peacemakers. And the second is as an academic and policy maker involved in the process of supporting the design and implementation of UN missions. And most recently, I've been in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Haiti. And consistent with Larry's call for some ground truths, I want to tell you about some of the uncomfortable realizations that I've come to and how that's beginning to shape and at least constrain my thinking on these questions. When looking at the issues on the table in this panel, I really think there are two questions that we need to answer. 
One is under what conditions do countries successfully emerge out of conflict? And by success here, at least let's take a minimal definition, which is the creation of a functioning, effective state. There are lots of other things we might want beyond that, economic growth, democracy, but just as a minimal definition, we'd like to see an end to violence. And then the second question, not necessarily the answer to the first question, is what role can outsiders play in facilitating the emergence of countries from conflict? And in answering these questions, there are two things that really have motivated my thinking. One is the set of issues that Larry already spoke to, which is the failure of the United States and the coalition to bring about stability and order in post-war Iraq. I don't need to go through the litany of problems that we see uh, on the television and radio and in our newspapers every day about the failure to ensure security and the ineffectiveness of the institutions that we've built. But I want to offer a reflection on the nature of the answers that are being generated about why it is that we have experienced this failure in Iraq. There's a growing conventional wisdom uh, in Washington. Larry was one of the first to make this argument, but there are a set of books now supporting uh, Larry's claims as well, that the main explanation or a key explanation is that basically we mucked up the mission, uh, that we had insufficient troops on the ground, we had insufficient resources committed, you had political operatives staffing key coalition provisional authority jobs, and so on, a, a litany of mistakes that were made that if only we could correct these things. If only we could correct these things, perhaps Iraq would have a capable and functioning state, and perhaps in looking forward in the long run, we might be able to do this more effectively around the globe. This has sort of become the conventional wisdom in Washington, and it will very much shape the policy debate, right? It really requires us to look at our own institutions and understand why each of these tactical mistakes were made and to attempt to rectify them through policy changes. But of course, there are lots of other possibilities out there that might explain why Iraq hasn't gone so well. Some have made the argument that Islam and democracy don't mix. Some have made the argument that ancient ethnic hatreds between groups, Sunni and Shia and so on, really didn't create a fertile environment in which to install a new regime. Uh, and then there's a third argument, which is the one that I want to talk a little bit about today, which is that perhaps outsiders are not in a particularly good position to generate institutions with domestic legitimacy and authority. So the reason that I put that on the table and my second motivation for pushing in this direction is really my experience as a scholar of sub-Saharan Africa. Africa, as you all know, has long-running troubles in building effective, functional, and representative state institutions. Since independence and even before independence, African governments have largely struggled to build effective states that can project power to their borders. Civil conflict is a regular occurrence in Africa. Anywhere between 15 and 20 of the 46 sub-Saharan African states have been involved in conflict ever since the 1980s. And over this period, the post-independence period in particular, there have been huge massive inflows of foreign assistance, particularly during the Cold War, but even after the Cold War, were designed, in effect, to build functional, effective governments that can project power. And often what we've seen with these flows of foreign aid is that they've undermined the incentives for effective governance rather than actually facilitated them. As Steve pointed to earlier in the post-Cold War, lots of support is now being provided through the mechanism of UN missions to help rebuild countries. And as I look at the experience of successful state building in Africa after 1980 in particular, there are a few post-conflict successes, and they're striking. They include places like Mozambique, Uganda, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Eritrea. And aside from Mozambique, the one thing that these cases share is that these are places where wars ended without the intervention of outside forces. These were wars in which revolutionaries mobilized in opposition to corrupt and authoritarian governments, and they overthrew those governments and installed new regimes. So my realization that comes from these two facts and motivations is that the path of external support for post-conflict transition may not be the only one, and perhaps it may not be the right one. And so understanding the conditions under which it does and doesn't make sense is something that we as scholars and policymakers really need to think about. Now I should let you know that this very much runs against the grain of things that I've written in the past positions that I've advocated in Washington, things I've written on the pages of foreign affairs that make arguments very similar to, to those that Larry made about the need for a more effective U.S. government stance on these issues. But I also feel coming out of my experience on the ground that this is an issue that I need to grapple with 
that I really need to understand what's going right in some of these places where the UN isn't getting involved at all, and what's going wrong in the places where the UN is getting involved. So a couple final thoughts on this before we head to the question and answer period. So as an academic with this sort of question, my first step is really to turn to the empirical facts, to look at how it is that wars end and what it is that produces peace. And let me just give you four things that I've found in attempting to, 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 to explore these, these facts. The first is that when wars end in victory for one side or another, the peace that results tends to be much more durable. So 75% of the wars since 1945 that have ended in victory uh, for either the government or the rebels remain dormant 10 years after the conflict has come to an end. And around 60% of the only 16 wars, a very small number of wars that have ended with the support of a UN intervention, remain dormant 10 years after the conflict is over. So there's a higher likelihood that peace may be stable uh, if, if the war actually ends with a victory for one side or another. A second fact is that UN interventions, by and large, favor, as, as Steve indicated, truces and settlements, right, in the form typically of power-sharing arrangements. And one of, so, so the facts that support this is when the UN gets involved, over 80% of the wars that end with the support of the UN end with a peace agreement or a truce. Less than 25% of those wars where the UN remains on the sideline end through a negotiated settlement. These are wars that are in some way either fought to conclusion or compromise uh, without the involvement of outside forces. A third fact that I want to put on the table is that when rebels come to power, and that's something that almost never happens when the UN gets involved, because the UN is biased, of course, in favor of states in general. Um, when rebels come to power, they're about as likely to produce a peace-building success, which I define as a conflict dormant 10 years after the war comes to an end, as UN interventions. So rebel victories produce a sustainable peace after 10 years, about 50% of the time, as does a UN mission. And so the question, the sort of question that we need to ask ourselves is what do we get out of a peace agreement and a sort of, you know, flip a coin chance for a sustainable peace? Uh, and what do we get out of a rebel victory? What do we get out of political revolution? And what are the conditions under which political revolution actually produces better outcomes? And so the final fact I want to offer you is that rebel victories, when they are achieved, almost are never achieved by those groups that you'd most fear would achieve them. Uh, so if you look at the distribution of rebel victories since 1945, they tend, wars tend not to be won by groups that uh, are involved in the coca trade, that plunder natural resources and diamonds. These tend to be groups that do not tend to win wars, even though they can make wars last for a long time. So why my focus on victory and why the particular attention to rebel groups? And in answering that question, I just want to end with a story. And the story is meant to help us understand when is it that revolutions produce meaningful change. Many of you might recall the Uganda of the 1970s and 1980s. It was the epitome of a failed state in the way that we think of Somalia today mass killings in the countryside, a government wholly incapable of delivering on the things that its people needed and demanded, a country in total disarray, yet a government actually backed by the British and the United States in the 1980s. Yoweri Museveni was a rebel leader at the time who in 1981, only 100 kilometers from the capital, uh, in a dense jungle region known as the Luero Triangle, started an insurgency with 26 men and 30 guns. He came from a small ethnic group from western Uganda, that had consistently been discriminated against by a government that had been dominated by ethnic groups from the north. And he went to the bush with very little cash in his pocket and no one outside of the country willing to support him. This is an insurmountable challenge for an insurgent group facing a government backed by outsiders. And what it required Museveni to do was to build a cross-ethnic alliance between southern ethnic groups and central ethnic groups to really challenge the corruption and authoritarianism of the government that had been in place. It required him to build a disciplined, accountable, and effective insurgent army, one that became the first rural insurgency in Africa to overthrow a post-colonial movement. And he did it by reshaping politics at the local level and building a grand coalition. As he was about to win the war, the Kenyans and the Tanzanians, with the backing of the UN, stepped in and tried to push Museveni to negotiate a power-sharing arrangement with the remnants of Obote's government. Museveni refused. He continued on to the capital, and he won. His post-conflict record is impressive. 
Rural poverty has been reduced from 70% to 35%, a scale of poverty reduction we never see in Africa, but that matches the sort of poverty reduction you've seen in Indonesia and China. HIV prevalence down from 25% to less than 5% of the population. Huge investments in primary education and the rebuilding of infrastructure. The election of a constituent assembly to rewrite a constitution, a constitution that was left by the British and that never had domestic legitimacy. A dramatic decentralization of power, abandoning a hierarchical structure of chiefs that had very little legitimacy at the local level and replacing it with elected local councils. And while Museveni banned political parties, something that in general we're uncomfortable with from where we sit in the U.S. government hierarchy, he banned these political parties because these are the parties that gave rise to ethnic and sectarian divisions that drove conflict in Uganda over 25 years. And he attempted to build an alternative political structure. Uh, we can talk about its strengths and weaknesses, but an alternative political structure in which those ethnic and sectarian divisions would not dominate Uganda's politics. Now, of course, the story isn't as simple as I paint it. A war continues to rage in northern Uganda, fought by a band of thugs. Museveni invaded eastern Congo in 1998 in a way that uh, many of us hoped he wouldn't, uh, looting the countryside of the eastern Congo, uh, but also attempting to install a new regime in Kinshasa. And Museveni has become less democratic and more authoritarian over time the more he stayed in office. But from the example of the Ugandan case, and the Ugandan case isn't all that different from Rwanda after the genocide or Ethiopia and Eritrea after their war against uh, the empire, it makes me think about two things that we need to take seriously as people who are interested in the reconstruction of failed states. The first is that revolutionary change is sometimes possible. And in fact, some of the things that revolutionary change can bring about, such as broad domestic political legitimacy for a movement, and the actual ability to project power to the extent of your borders and to, to deliver on some of the promises that you make, is something that we need to understand when this can happen and when it can't, to, to give us the sort of information we need to know when it makes sense to go in and negotiate a power-sharing arrangement and when it makes sense to back revolutionary movements that are bringing about change. But the second issue, and one on which I'm focusing my work now, is that revolutions don't always stay their course. And so understanding how it is that one works with revolutionary leaders to create the conditions for the persistence of some of the very good things that they do when they come to power, to prevent this authoritarian decline that we've seen in the case of Museveni, is something I feel that we don't know much about, but something that we need to understand. So thank you again for coming, and let's open up the floor to questions now uh, for the last sort of 20 to 30 minutes. Could you uh, apply your analyses to the situation in Afghanistan and why there's been a failure to establish any kind of stability in that Why there's been failure to stabilize Afghanistan? That was the question. Why has there been st failure to stabilize Afghanistan? Uh, well, <laughs> there weren't enough resources to begin with. Uh, now, you can say, going back to Jeremy, it was never going to be possible, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't agree with that, actually. I think that it it's much more open to question wh whether we could have succeeded under any circumstance, under any scenario in Iraq. And I wasn't before we invaded, and I wasn't after we invaded, and I went there very sanguine in my answer to that question, which is why I opposed... American military intervention in the first place. Afghanistan, I think it was much more possible, and the tragedy of Afghanistan begins with the American intervention in Iraq. And the fact that when we invaded Afghanistan, if you read the accounts now, the Bush administration had already made up its mind that it was going to uh, invade um, Iraq by the spring of 2003, uh, no later. Uh, so if you do the uh, mathematical formula uh, of uh, stabilization troops to um, local population and you realize that Afghanistan has about the same population as Iraq and, in fact, uh, the geography is actually uh, more formidable, uh, and then you realize that we don't have enough troops in Iraq. We've never had enough troops in Iraq. I don't think we can increase them now, but that's my view. Uh, and we have less than a third, uh, really probably not much more, or, or maybe even less than a quarter of the total international uh, troops in Afghanistan that we have in Iraq 
you begin with that. Secondly, um, I think that uh, we have not had a, a very good strategy for getting um, uh, uh, reconstruction and development assistance in and around the country uh, economically. Uh, we have a leader uh, who was chosen who is skillful in some ways, but I think has become much too cautious and isn't getting around the country. One reason why he can't get around the country is that there's rising insecurity in the country. We haven't had a good uh, counter-narcotic uh, strategy that's really uh, would give um, the um, uh, uh, peasants who are starting to grow um, opium again in large amounts financial incentives not to do that and to turn to other crops. But I really think it begins with security. If you cannot secure the countryside and give people a sense of um, confidence that they can go about their normal economic governance uh, and social lives without falling victim to predatory behavior by warlords or other thugs, then the whole psychology of the situation shifts. Uh, and just, I'm not an expert at all in Afghanistan, but just reading the newspaper accounts, it seems to me that the deteriorating security situation uh, is the lead factor in this and the loss of confidence in the Karzai government and the fact that more and more people are turning back to the Taliban because they remember that things were secure uh, under the Taliban. If I can just say, uh, respond to something you said, Jeremy, with Afghanistan in mind and continuing on this very point, I won't for the moment challenge anything you say. I will say peace is not the only value that we need to pursue. Uh, there was peace in, in Afghanistan under the Taliban, and it was a peace that was not tolerable to the national security of the United States, not to mention to other values we have. So sometimes, um, you know, you've got to factor in broader considerations in the decision to intervene. Steve, do you want to say anything on Afghanistan? Or yeah, no, there's so many questions. Go okay. Uh, you mentioned about your neighbors, whether they're good or bad. Uh, what is the effect, number one, two brief questions. What is the effect of Islam upon the revolutions within Africa? And number two, what do you see in the new uh, Secretary General from South Korea as the effect on the resolution of these conflicts? Yeah, on the, on the first question on Islam. Uh, the first question is, do you see any role of Islam uh, in relation to the civil wars in Africa? Uh, and the second is, what do I think of Ban Ki-moon? Is that basically it? Um, on, on the first one, uh, in, I mean, I wouldn't have the numbers handy, but mo for, for, for most wars in, in Africa, the, the role of Islam is, is fairly marginal. It's really when you get in, into the Horn of Africa uh, up to Somalia where, where it becomes relevant um, and becomes an issue. I mean, it was an interesting report that, again, UN observers on the ground uh, just reported on who is violating the arms embargo in, Somal in Somalia right now and, and who are the big uh, violators, uh, Iran, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and I think Syria was, was amongst the top three violators of the arms embargo. So, <coughs> so they're, they're clearly picking sides in terms of who they want to win in, in Somalia. Um, but it, uh, it, it's really you, you, you would be looking essentially at uh, right, right now and historically uh, nor, Northeast Africa. Um, uh, the second question on Ban Ki-moon, it's, it's just too early to tell. Um, you, you know, he hasn't even appointed his staff yet. He arrived in New York yesterday. He stepped down as South, South Korean foreign minister last Friday. And until you start to see, you know, the 70 appointments of undersecretary generals and assistant secretary generals, um, you really can't make a good bet as to, you know, how serious that uh, administration is going to be. So I'm going to ask people to please stand up as you ask your questions just to ensure that people can hear around the room. Um, Latin America doesn't have failed states of the magnitude of the ones we're talking about, but they're certainly weakening or backsliding in some ways. What's, what's your outlook and what, if anything, do you think the international community should do? Well, um, I think it's very mixed. 
uh, Mexico seems to have survived uh, what we went through in 2000, um, maybe better than you might have expected, the protests that Lopez Obrador mobilized against the close election result and the failure to have a full national recount, I think are petering out. Uh, and uh, the uh, newly elected president, Felipe Calderon, I think, you know, it a lot depends on his instincts toward reconciliation, broadening his political base and so on, but he's a very capable, smart person. He may well surprise people. The uh, supposedly Marxist or socialist uh, president uh, of Brazil, Lula da Silva, was reelected after having to have a runoff surprisingly easily and I think um, has governed pretty well. Uh, and so at the opposite ends of the continent, you see Argentina stabilizing, Chile uh, having a succession of a second socialist president and now a woman president. Not sure if that's a harbinger for any other country in the hemisphere, but um, uh, it's a step forward for Latin America, certainly. Uh, and Brazil, given the enormous problems of poverty, inequality, weak governance, human rights violations, uh, I think Lula has been pragmatic in governing in his economic policies and so on. When you converge on the Andean region, maybe Jeremy will say something about that because one of his case studies was of the insurgency in Peru. Uh, it's a lot more troublesome with drugs, with uh, Chavez making trouble uh, uh, emanating out of Venezuela. I think Venezuela is no longer a democracy uh, Bolivia polarization with the succession of this peasant um, indigenous leader to the presidency. Maybe he'll turn it around. But that part of Latin America is much more troublesome. As you go to the opposite ends, I think it's less so. You want to? I, I think that the U.S. foreign policy needs to grapple with and understand the rise of leftist populism in Latin America, and in particular in the Andean region, and understand why it is that people who live in societies that are highly unequal in terms of income uh, and with political parties that often represent the interests of the coast and not the indigenous highlands, people have basically abandoned these parties and turned to alternatives. And one of the key realizations has to be that the benefits of policy reform in the 1980s and uh, our attempts to create conditions for the entrance of many sort of middle-income Latin American countries, aside from the Brazils and the Chiles, into the global economy is not realizing the benefits uh, that are required to maintain a political consensus and support of those policies. Uh, now, in places that have done better economically, like Peru, you actually saw the defeat of a leftist candidate. But in other places where, and this brings me to the second policy issue, where the U.S. attention has been overridingly on issues related to the drug war, uh, places like Bolivia, um, leftist populism is even more attractive. And so I think grappling with what are the policy proposals that we can put on the table to ensure that the benefits of integration into the global economy are more broadly distributed in highly unequal societies has got to be at the core of the U.S.'s agenda in Latin America. And thinking about the appropriate placement of our anti-drug policies in the context of a broader strategy to strengthen uh, states and to strengthen democracy in Latin America. But that has been such an overriding motivation for what we've done in Colombia, Bolivia, and other places that it's blinded us, I think, to the conditions on the ground that have created the conditions for the rise of leftist populism. And listening, listening to the calm lucidity of you gentlemen, I'm reminded of the uh, tone of the uh, dialogue in Washington. And listening to Abby Zayed yesterday, uh, one is simply stunned by what must surely be the deliberate avoidance of the truth. So you, you, you've got a problem that goes really to the depth of democracy, doesn't it? I mean, even if, put in terms of your first point, before we go, we need to understand the context. Do you think that if this present administration had understood the context, they would not have gone? Do you, th do you think they would have made a wise decision of, of that kind? I mean, I, I, understand, I, I understand from uh, Woodward's second book that, uh, that uh, the, the Defense Secretary actually sent away the State Department that arrived with a great, uh, a great file of information on, on Iraq, including street names 
Why do you even send him away just because he was from the State Department? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so clearly, in our democracy, there's operating something contrary to the lucidity and rationality of your gentleman's address. And uh, so, I guess the down and dirty question is, why aren't you uh, politicians? <laughs> Most academics don't make very good politicians. Maybe a former colleague of ours uh, uh, who's now in Washington is an exception. but. Um, uh, I'll just speak for myself. Uh, I don't think that's my uh, my particular calling, certainly not electoral politics. On the uh, question you posed initially, well, um, let me say that um, if there had been a full and considered understanding and absorption of the understanding that was mobilized, for example, by the State Department in the future of Iraq project, maybe there still would have been a decision to intervene, which itself, I believe then and believe now, would have been and has been a mistake. Okay, we agree on that. But I think we would not have dissolved the Iraqi army uh, and made uh, 300 to 400,000 enemies that we uh, turned with their guns into resistance against uh, the post-war order. We would not have engaged in a scope of debathification so massive and indiscriminate as it was that turned much of the country's uh, e elite uh, into hostile elements and made the country administratively so difficult to govern and reconstruct. We would not have had an American uh, occupation of Iraq with um, a occupation of authority run by a brilliant but, I have to say, very arrogant and controlling, micromanaging uh, official uh, who fashioned himself after Douglas MacArthur, we would have avoided a lot of mistakes that we, that we made. And maybe the grand mistake was, I believe it, it, it was, to have invaded in the first place. But there was a lot piled on top of it. And let me say, coming back to you, I must say I really believed um, when I left that things would be even worse in Iraq than they are today. And the fact that there's any chance at all of preventing all-out civil war uh, and stabilizing this suggests to me, actually, that um, if we had gone in with a much better, more carefully prepared strategy to have a national conference like they did in Afghanistan, to have a coalition government in Iraq like they had in Afghanistan, uh, and then to have a national dialogue to write a constitution before they had elections and space it out over a longer period of time, which might have been possible if there wasn't an occupation that they were seething to get rid of. It's possible to imagine Jeremy's sort of satisficing outcome. That is, not democracy, not a pro-American regime, but a new government that's more decent than Saddam Hussein and that's capable of managing its territory and governing itself. The only thing I'd add is that I think looking across the, the comments that the three of us offered, uh, it suggests a note of humility. And that's part of what's missing in the conversation both about going to Iraq and Afghanistan in the first place, but also what we did wrong. That grand plans, either led by states within states or by states in other states, uh, have lots of problems that go along with them. And I think all of the statements that we offer here about we have to think about the conditions under which these things might be effective. I think you sort of heard that sort of conditional comment in the three things that, that all of us said suggests humility, and humility is one of the things that's been often lacking in, in the conversation in Washington. Right, and just, uh, I mean, just, just to echo the point that, I mean, the kind of stuff that we're talking about is, is really, really difficult, uh, very complex, uh, and involves massive social and political engineering, regardless of whether it's Iraq or it's Sierra Leone or it's Mozambique or El Salvador. All of this stuff is really difficult to do uh, and to do right. My answer is that this group that got you into Iraq was not going to be a group that was going to produce uh, a really well-balanced, well-understanding grand strategy for doing all this stuff. Because from the get-go, uh, they were hostile to the professional bureaucracy. 
uh, and didn't see the professional analysts as an asset, but as an obstacle to be, you know, avoided and run over. So how you can have, you know, there was no humility to begin with, and you're certainly not going to get it later from them. It was hubris, and that's what you were going to get, right? So uh, in, a, in, a, in a perfect world, yes, rationally, you can create a strategy that you can imagine might have succeeded, but these guys sure weren't going to get it for you. Wondering now that we have what is in effect a civil war in Iraq, what should we do, and what do you think is likely to be done? And if you could also just comment on the question of whether we need more troops to redeploy troops, whether the country should be split into three regions, etc. Okay, um, very briefly, I'm not going to comment on what is likely to be done because within a few weeks the Iraq Study Group is going to make its recommendations and uh, let's not prejudge what, what they might say uh, and propose, and let's not prejudge at this point when he's just received, frankly, the very serious electoral message that he has uh, and has now finally, I think three years too late, dismissed his defense secretary. Let's not prejudge what President Bush may re respond to in terms of the Iraq Study Group recommendations. Briefly, I agree with General Abizade on one point, that even though I think we should have sent more troops a long time ago, it's too late for that now, and doing it now would just be seen as a sign that the United States is absolving Iraqis of the responsibility to right their own affairs and stabilize their own country, to begin to assert themselves in doing that, and would send a message to the insurgency that we're going to be there forever and therefore they should resist us forever. I think we have to have a strategy uh, that is politically led of doing two things. Number one, fashioning a constitutional bargain that all sides can minimally accept as better than civil war. And that means a more viable federal structure, not breaking up the country into three pieces, but having a more fluid federal structure and a bargain on the sharing of uh, oil revenue in proportional terms among different pieces of the country so everybody can have confidence through a credible internationally guaranteed arrangement that each part of the country is going to have reasonable access to and sharing of the oil resources that constitute about 90% of government revenue. Uh, we have to reconfigure and diminish the Sunni-based insurgency before we withdraw in Iraq, or Iraq is going to be, in significant measure, what Afghanistan was before September 11th. Western Iraq will be in conditions of unconditional withdrawal and rapid withdrawal, I think very likely a, a training ground, um, an organizational haven for a new breed of al-Qaeda. Uh, which seeks to commit a jihadist war against the United States. I think that can be reversed by cutting a deal with the secular and more tactical Islamist elements of the insurgency for them to turn against al-Qaeda in Iraq because they don't want this group in their midst. They don't agree with its aims. Uh, and they have other fish to fry. They view Iran as their strategic enemy. To do that, we need to talk to them directly to a degree that we haven't so far. We need the help of the United Nations in particular, sometimes there is a role for the UN, uh, and the European Union to work this diplomatically on all sides. We need to talk to the regional partners, and we need to put things on the table that we have not been able or willing to put on the table so far in more limited uh, and largely to this date feudal talks that we've had, not publicized, but we've had them, with elements or professed elements of the Iraqi insurgency. Number one, we absolutely must disavow any intention of seeking permanent military bases in Iraq. Finally, after two years of my urging journalists to do this, somebody asked Bush this question at a press conference about two or three weeks ago, and he wouldn't rule it out. And it was a lost opportunity, uh, and we're not going to turn the corner on this insurgency 
until they think we do not have permanent designs on their country. Number two, we have to set a timetable for withdrawal or some kind of time frame for indicating to the Iraqis that they're going to have to assume responsibility for their own affairs. We're not going to be there forever. And again, we don't have permanent designs on the country. Just a, an observation that flows from the Right Honorable Gentleman's comments. I would infer that a fair question for you academics to take from us or some of us, might be whether America should rethink whether it should intervene, not setting the conditions for doing so to optimize. Had we, for example, imposed 500,000 troops in one, it seems that Jeremy Weinstein's observations raise questions about what the ultimate outcome of external intervention is. Um, America, one, what one would invite your views about this rather than my giving you mine, but we, we've got the challenge of aligning our interests more closely with more countries than we've traditionally done. And until we do that, if we intervene because our own interests are threatened, we're going to have inherent conflict. That seems to me to be at the core of the right honorable gentleman's point, and I thought it was a pretty important one. I mean, I, there are different kinds of intervention. Um, was, you know, do I think that the United States was right to intervene in Kosovo? Uh, were they right to put in 60,000 tro NATO troops to implement the, the Dayton Accords in Bosnia? Mm -hmm. uh, are they right to be in Afghanistan today? There, there are all kinds of interventions for all kinds of different purposes. Um, and my belief is that, uh, that in the future we will see uh, other cases where uh, intervention is deemed either for uh, humanitarian reasons or for reasons of national interest on a more of a consensus basis that, that this is appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and that if, if you believe that, then, then you should be thinking about uh, how, how do you do it better. And uh, for the UN, it's easy because the UN gets all the orphans, and the expectation is they will have to intervene, and they're going to keep intervening. Uh, as I said, I mean, we're going to be up to 100,000 UN peacekeepers, $6 billion, 18 operations, and it's all the places where, frankly, uh, Europe and the United States really doesn't care all that much, and so it will drop to the UN. And so, yes, there is a real value in trying to get the UN to, to make improvements on the margin, right? Um, but similarly with the U.S., I mean, as I said, this stuff is really difficult. Um, something like, you know, sta stabilization, building a state after conflict, building self-sustaining peace, these are issues that cut across bureaucracies. Um, they, they cut across the, the siloed nature of how our bureaucracies work. Um, and you are going to have to get uh, better responses across institutions if you're going to do it better, and I think that uh, that's a good thing. For reasons of time, I hope you'll join me in thanking our panelists, and I think we'll be around to answer additional questions. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.